Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Matthias. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brandon. Thank you for having me. How is your week going so far? What's uh, going on in your world? Yes, no, everything is, everything is great. I just had some uh, changes in, uh, on the personal side. I just moved um, location. But on the business side, everything is good. We just attended a conference this week and we had our company retreat in Barcelona uh, the, the previous two weeks. So yeah, a lot of travel and a lot of exciting things happening. I'm a big fan of these off-site gatherings. So let's open up the show maybe with that, like, you know, kind of share what that's all about, what it does for your team, how you budgeted for it and how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very quick background about Tint and then it will make sense why we're, we're talking about that. But they have Tint, you know, we, are, uh, we help tech platforms uh, embed insurance products uh, into their, their products and services, right? So think about we have one customer like you ship when you you can ship things from like you know a car from New York to San Francisco, for example. And as you go through the process, you're going to be offered a way to buy protection for your shipping if there's any damages. And we power everything behind the scenes. So like we provide this kind of ability, we give the ability to tech platforms to create those protection products that kind of become a feature of their main offerings and help them increase conversion and increase profitability um, as well. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is like, you know, going to answer your story about uh, offsites, I will tell you, we uh, we were founded in 2018 and we've been remote since month number three of our journey. So I was an early employee at Turo with my co-founder, Jerome, we always chatted, okay, I stayed there for four years. We always talked about starting something together. And when the time uh, finally came, we saw an opportunity at Turo that now uh, ended up becoming Tint. Uh, he, was the, he came to me and said, that's great, we'll do it. But I'm moving back to France. He is French. He had spent seven years in the Bay Area. So pretty much in 2018, we were a remote first company. I was in San Francisco, he was in Paris, and I was doing that. And... Because we started this way, we were confronted with all those problems and opportunities that the tech platforms or the, the, the companies are going through today and had to build our culture, our processes around that. And one of the secret sauces from the early days was the offsites, or do we call them the retreats? So at the time, we realized that like, okay, having a remote company without any in-person interaction is very hard, even when we're only two people. And then we went up to five at the time. So every uh, quarter, we started to have offsites. So I mentioned we just had our last one in Barcelona, was our retreat number 16. So we have done 16 of those in different parts of the world from Europe, Africa, Americas, like you know, US, Mexico, Canada. So really being all over the place. And it's a key part of our culture. Like we really believe in the DNA of getting people together from time to time, having this sprint where we align and we work together. So then when we break, 
we kind of, everybody's on the same page and know what to do. Well, that's impressive. Every quarter? Yeah, it started every quarter. Now we grew, so we're about uh, 50 employees. So we are now doing uh, company-wide retreats every six months, but we still have smaller retreats within different departments or, or leadership. They happen more often than that. I was just about to ask you, how does that look like when you start to grow? And how did your investors take it? Did they see the value? Were they supportive of this? Yeah, it was very interesting because there was a shift in uh, perception, right? So back in 2018, prior to COVID, if you remember, almost nobody was doing remote. So investors used to look at us very negatively. Like I had investors that came to me and said straight, I'm not going to invest because you're a remote company. And I don't believe that's going to work. Like, so that was kind of where we were up against back then. What was it when COVID hits? Somehow we had an advantage because nothing really changes for us other than we couldn't do our retreats from time to time. But like the processes, the workflows, everything was already designed for remote. So we didn't have to change. And I think there was an, an advantage, to be honest, while, while, while the rest of the world was kind of learning how to operate in this model. Um, and but then like it's changing the investor perspective as well. So after we raise our we raise our seed round in 2020, late 2020 uh, or early 2021, in March of 2021, at that time nobody asked about remote. Uh, we were fully remote, fully distributed. There was not a single investor that said anything. And I do think that like right now we're gonna see, we're seeing a bit of a fork in the road. Like some investors won't continue to not like, but some investors even see that as a positive because as a remote company, we can run things on average much cheaper than if we were all based in San Francisco. And we have access to a global talent pool that we also wouldn't have if we're all in the same place. I remember in my previous company, our remotes were very expensive. And it was something that we had to constantly sell to the board, but eventually they were on board, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm just curious if you had any issues and if you did, like, how did you sell them on this? Not at all, because our travel is very simple, right? Like our travel expenses, even with the retreats in exotic locations, um, these expenses are much cheaper than if we were to rent an office in San Francisco or in any major area, right? So we save, on average, we save a lot of money by not having an office. And that's kind of what can fund those those trips. And I hope you don't mind me keep going down this path. I think it's actually a really cool topic. So a couple follow-ups, like what are some of the activities you guys do? And is it more about getting together or do you have like a program where every day you have a, a schedule and is it mixed between business and pleasure? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a bit of sense of the last retreat, which is representative of how we've been doing. So it's a five-day retreat. So Monday to Friday, um, again, as I mentioned, everyone in the company and it's a work time, right? The expectation is that it's not a, it's not a vacation. It's work and it's very intense. I think between work and social events and dinners, like it can stretch like, you no, know, 12, 14 hours a day of like activities. Um, but we try to get, get, get people some free time in this period. But let's say it is a work trip. Um, and we normally do out of the five days, four days of kind of work and schedule and presentations, hackathons, breakout sessions, so really kind of work-related things. And the fifth day, the Friday, 
is typically an activity day where it's, uh, uh, we did, for example, this time a cooking lesson or we're in Barcelona. So we went to this very beautiful place. Um, and then we had like a tapas kind of cooking. So we were the different groups, our team was split in different groups uh, and they cooked different tapas. And in the end, we all had lunch together. And then we had also a flamenco show that like, you know, in the evening and we had dinner. So like we definitely like the mix is four days of kind of hardcore work and one day of team building experiences. Is this still work if you think because it's mandatory and you know, it's, we'll pick activities that are kind of conducive to to a work environment, to a team, but is but um, but is is mostly like a leisure. And then the evenings, of course, people get together, they drink, they go out, they can do whatever they want. But that's kind of how um, how we split our retreats. Maybe we'll wrap up here, and then we'll get into the meat of the show, which is actually very much aligned with this. So, from an intangible ROI from these offsites, what? Can you say you've heard or felt or seen from the employees by having these offsites? Yeah, the feedback is almost unanimous. Like we need those times again in order for remote to work well. We need some core alignment that can only be done in high bandwidth situations, right? High bandwidth communications. Like, and the retreats are are the best ones right? because you now again for the whole the overall team. Every six months is when we collect enough feedback. We're revising some of our plans. So that's a good time to sit down, align, uh, communicate, align expectations, align the next, the plan for the next now six months or so. So that is very useful. And then the other part that is kind of less content related is just the personal relationships, right? You know, in a fast growing company like us. In a stretch of six months, there are a bunch of people that join who never may never met others in person. And um, having people meet in person, have some shared experiences, and it really helps them collaborate in a remote environment, right? Then your colleague is no longer a, a Slack line and or email, right? You know the person, you went out with the person, you did a cooking class, whatever things that you can do, that really helps. And what we learn is like, you know, some people ask me, it's like, yeah, but why don't you do an uh, in-person company and you can get that all the time? Well, you don't need that all the time, right? You need it in a certain cadence. And, and if we believe six, three to six months is a, is a good cadence. And like, we don't need that every day either, right? Because again, the every day comes with the commute, comes with the office expenses and all those things that like, then you cannot do those trips because then those trips become too expensive when you... When you combine. Okay, last question, I promise. <laughs> no worries. I love to talk about this topic. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I, I, I want to save some time for the rest of the questions too. But yeah, who did you use to organize? Did you do it in-house or did you take like an agency to help you plan the activities, etc.? We use an agency. So we have team, uh, a couple of people internally that, who like you know, quarterback and, and, and lead the process. But we also use an agency for the planning, search for accommodation, booking of local activities and things like that. We try a few different ones. For this last one, we use an agency called Journey. I believe they're based in, in, in Paris. And because the retreat was in Europe, like they make sense. They know the, the space well. We try a few other ones. I think one's called Flock uh, before. But yeah, depending on the location, we our experience is that they are agencies, they're good, and then they will help us 
plan everything. Awesome. Thank you for that. Before we jump in, can you give us a quick background about you and your journey to becoming a founder of Tint? Yeah, I'm uh, born and raised in Brazil. Um, So I moved to the U.S. about 13 years ago uh, to go to business school. I, I went to Harvard Business School. And the reason why I came is that I knew from very early age that I wanted to run businesses and kind of found global companies. And then I thought that like the U.S. is the best place in the world, the Valley, even more specifically, the best place in the world to to start a tech company. And that's why I came through grad school um, and then moved to, to the Bay Area after graduation. And I joined Turo, as I mentioned, which was at the time, Turo is a the largest peer-to-peer car sharing startup out there, very successful, multi-billion dollar business. And I joined them back in 2014 when they were about you know, 20 people, still Series A, early stage. And that's when I met my co-founder, uh, Jerome. And as I mentioned, we got involved on in the insurance part of Turo from different perspectives. Um, so then we saw both the opportunity of how a tech platform like Turo was know, doing a lot of the tasks of an insurance company and profiting a lot from that. But we also saw how hard it was for them to execute on this opportunity without proper support because you know, it's not a car business, so it's always hard to uh, prioritize resources. So that's what inspired us to start Tint, to really build the, the tools, the company, the, the partner that we wish existed when we were building uh, the insurance stack inside I think that's a great segue to the framework for today's episode. And I really like frameworks personally. So you gave a very simple, elegant framework for scaling in a decentralized slash remote workforce. If I remember correctly, you broke it down into managing teams, delegating and planning. I would like to run through those starting with managing teams and how it all rolls up into managing and scaling a remote workforce? Sure. So I think, I think even if we do one step before that, right? I think to me, the secret for remote work, to, like you no know, remote companies to, to work successfully is understanding and embracing that they are different. So a lot of the things that happen organically, naturally in an office um, need to be designed and, and thought through and formalized, frankly, in a remote company, right? So then we can start kind of going one by one of the topics you mentioned. But I think the overarching principle is that remote requires more structure early on. Um, though I think Tint as a Series A startup, I believe we have a lot more structure and processes and things that we have to, to design than say most start Series A startups that were Series A. Again, some people would see that as an advantage, some people would see it as a disadvantage. Now, when we get to managing teams, I think this is the first one, right? You are hiring people that you probably never uh, met in person. And even when you hire them, when they join, you are collaborating for the most of the, most part by, uh, by, by Zoom or async. So there is definitely a, different way of how you manage uh, you manage team. And so if you start by like recruiting, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but you can't recruit like them pretty, like arguably anywhere, right? So you can say, well, it's a fair game. Somebody's in Japan or in Texas or 
in Brazil. Like I, I don't care as long as the person um, contributes, has the skill. But I do think it's important for teams who early on decide, great, the, now the, the, the talent pool becomes global. But where do I want to set the boundaries? Because like, for example, time zones are one of the most challenging like, things for teams as how you manage teams. Because if you are managing somebody that is, has a one hour overlap with you, that's very challenging, right? Like to just kind of do the day-to-day communication and stuff. So for us, like, you know, we started kind of anything goes, but now we are a little bit more like, okay, we have a lot of people in Europe. We have a lot of people in the U.S. from East to West Coast. Let's at least try to like, like bound our kind of hiring pool on that area. So like, you I mean, somebody's in Asia, I'm sure they can be very good, but like, it would be harder for us to, to work with that. So the first thing I would say is like, you know, putting together, like what are, when it comes to teams, like what is the team structure you need? What are the boundaries around your kind of time zones, the way to work? Because then when we have that in mind, then you can manage the teams or you can say, okay, product teams, they are in this time zone. So like, then you start, okay. How do I manage our day-to-day interactions? Like you probably need a lot more async communication because especially with, with time zones. Then if you need more async, it means that you have to create a bit more like processes and cadences where people do maybe their stand-ups are no longer by a video. The stand-ups are written, right? So everybody in the morning, their time, write what they're working on. So then the teams can kind of start designing their own uh, rituals and their own frameworks based uh, based on that, but I think it always starts with like you know defining as a company what are the boundaries you want to set, and then you plan everything uh, from there. And you have to again think about like very critically because if you're in an office, it's like yeah, I just hire everybody in my city, or if I hire them outside, I force them to relocate, and then I and and that's how it works. Um, but as remote, you have a lot more degrees of freedom, so you need to put some your point framework or structure in place otherwise it becomes too complex so could you walk us through a bit more about managing teams what do you expect what do you look for in remote hires what kind of management style do you need or look for i think the answer to this question maybe starting to touch your next point as well which is decentralization right like in our point of view the way you solve for managing teams is by empowering people is by being decentralized. Why? Because in remote world, it's again, especially remote plus time zones differences, which is our, our world, you cannot look up people's shoulders. You cannot micromanage. Even if you really want and try, it just can't happen. The person sometimes is working for four hours while you're sleeping. Like, you know, it's just, it's not possible as you'll be in, in an office. So to, to us, like, you know, from our, our early Early days, we realized like we need to hire people who kind of can be autonomous, can be you know self like uh, self starters. Because otherwise, again, if you if you were not if you need your manager, the manager is not available. Like you gotta figure it out. Otherwise, we just kind of waste so much time. So getting self starters, like recruiting for people who are more independent and are used to do that, that's one of the, the first things uh, we do. But then after that, then again design a culture, design processes and systems that empower them. Because at the end of the day, as I mentioned, if everything is centralized, if people need my opinion on everything they do, 
and I'm gone for half of the day if they're in Europe, or I don't have time for the matter because my calendar is blue, like that creates problems. So that's why we kind of get to, to the centralization part as well, which is like, if you have empowered people, if you formalize some of those uh, rituals, expectations, things like performance reviews, like you know, trying to be as uh, formalized and transparent as you can about those things, then people should have what they need to be self-sufficient and kind of do the work uh, so they don't. And then uh, you manage them in a different way, right? You're managing them based on the outcomes. You're managing them like, I, I'm not going to be, like if you want to play tennis at 1 p.m. on a Wednesday, nobody's going to stop you. If you want to take a nap, nobody's going to stop you. But we're going to manage your outcome, right? At the end of the day, you said you would deliver this by Friday. Friday comes, have you done it? Yes or no, why not? And I think that's why kind of like we shift from managing tasks, like what a lot of people do in the office world, which is like, did this person show up? What time did they leave the office? Like this bullshit that has no relationship with performance whatsoever. And we try to manage more the outcomes, which is like, if you work in the middle of your night and you still deliver what you have to, like, that's not, that's great. It works for you. If you work four hours and we're able to do it, that's great. I mean, obviously what is required from you probably will push you to the point that like, I don't think you, you'll be able to be very successful just working for hours, but like, even the extreme case that somebody is very high performance, we say, great, we manage your outcomes, right? We're happy with your outcomes. I am all for that. Keep it simple and get rid of all the, the BS and the drama. You also talked about delegation. How does that fit into the remote framework? Why is that important? Yeah, I think the, again, we, uh, auton autonomy and, and delegation to me, they, they come together in a sense that um, if you, like, there's no way to empower somebody if you don't delegate, uh, right? If you don't let them decide on important topics that are kind of touching their, their work. Um, and I think then that's why I think they go hand in hand. Because just think about it. Like, if you say, ah, oh, yeah, sure, you're autonomous, but I'm going to double check every single thing you do and change everything. Well, Next time, the person is not going to do it, right? They're like, yeah, I will do whatever because it's going to change anyway. Now, if you say, you, it's like, yeah, I'm delegating the, the authority and again, and I'm going to, uh, you're going to be responsible for the outcomes and you're going to have the power to make the decision and choose the direction within the scope of your work. I think that creates a sense of ownership that really changes the, the quality of work of the person. And again, in a remote world, plus time zone, you don't even have a choice. Again, if you want to double check everything, the, the machine just doesn't work because there's too many things. Obviously, for like critical, strategical questions, a lot of I'm very involved and we are always still a relatively small team. But I would say that we already kind of empower a lot more than a comparable startup of our size. Um, in a non-remote world. It brings up a lot of basic management 101 must-haves because I feel like managing a remote team, if you don't have the managerial skills or if you're not a natural like leader, I think a lot of people will fail at managing remote. I'm curious to hear 
your thoughts on that? And did it come naturally to you? Does it come naturally to your employees? Did they have prior management training? Did you give them management training? So, I mean, did it come naturally to me um, or to the team? The answer is like, no, right? Like there's a little bit of trial and error because it was a new thing for for all of us. So in our case, again, because we had this from the beginning, it was a, we just started to design things around that. So it was easier. We could earlier see the issues and try to fix them. Um, but, and I think one no, small example. So we switched from retreat to summation every quarter to every six months. And then for the first time we've done that, we didn't have anything in between. So one of the feedback we all got was like, that it was way too long. Like there's no, uh, we got to create all the ways that people choose, even if they're not going to meet everyone in the company, but they're going to meet their managers, they're going to meet their peers, whatever, more often than every six months. And then uh, that was a good example. Like we didn't know about it. We just were used to quarter. We changed and then, then we saw. Now, I think that the same kind of try and error applies to leadership, uh, to your question. Like, it's always you know, easier to have one-on-one hard conversations in person, for example, than when you are on Zoom, especially for like some performance-related things. And if there's kind of... So had I ever had a like hard conversation, feedback conversation, for example, um, remote first? No, because I would do that in person, right? That's especially those ones. Now, then what we try to do is like, okay, um, we got to do it again. We don't have a choice. So you're going to have to figure that out. And the other part is like, yeah, so to the extent we can wait for a time with the person in person, then maybe you can do it. So this is a small example to to show, but I think this is kind of cuts across leadership, right? Like motivating people, getting them excited, teaching them. I think a lot of this, we're, we're still learning. And you ask about, training so the answer is like no as a startup we had no training it was like trial by by fire it's like okay good job you're a manager go um you work maybe i should have also asked you like did you hire people with prior managerial experience because that could also be an enabler to the startup they don't have to learn everything from the get-go they already have managerial experience we do. If we're hiring for a position that is already a manager, then yes, we will look for that experience. And I mean, right now, even try to see if the person has experience with remote teams, which is like, you know, now what, four years in-ish from when COVID started, like some people develop that, some people like that. So that it's easier now than it was before. But we also promoted, like, or we prefer to promote it from within. So then we can promote somebody that was not a, a manager. We had you know, a few examples. We had you know, the minority of cases didn't work. That we had cases where the person just didn't scale to a manager and we tried and just didn't work. But I'd say for the most part, it, it did it did work. Um, and what we're starting to think about now is like, yeah, can we also complement the kind of learn by doing with formal training? Like, can we have Udemy or other tools that can give people like management one-on-one in case they didn't have to. I mean, it's still TBD that in a startup world, how much again of this kind of formal education would, would actually help. But we are, again, as I mentioned, the trial and error, we are 
always open to just as a as a good agile startup, like try and then if it works, great. If it doesn't work, we'll figure out what's next. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic and I think an underrated one as well, having the empowerment and the tools to train your team. However, to your point, like for startups, it's much more challenging to get those resources. So if you can find non-expansive ways of achieving the same outcome, that's great. You mentioned Udemy and I've read many good HBR articles as well, which were referred to me, which I found to be very useful and inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And then getting to our third piece of the framework, you also mentioned planning. How important is planning when it comes to scaling remote? Yeah, the planning is another one again. Is a, a planning brings all of this together and gives people visibility of what's happening in the company, right? So if you think about the, again, the non-remote world, you're just like chatting with people more often. Maybe you're just gonna step to the product side of the, the things like, hey, what are you guys working on? What is working, what's not working? And then it's easy. Uh, and dependencies, right? Like I need this from here. Like I, I need that to be done by next week. Can you do that? Like it's a bit more informal. Uh, what, we, what we learned, especially as we went to, we went from two through around four to five people for a while. And then we went from five to 15 to 50, like in fast steps, right? So it was small for a while and then started accelerating. And we're probably getting to much faster than that in the next uh, few months. But the point is like, we saw that at some point, the communication, the coordination started to break. Um, Because again, when you were five and I was the only business person for two years in our company, I don't have to coordinate, right? Like getting something done means I sit down and do it. I don't have dependency on others. I don't need to give visibility. Like it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. You guys trust me. And that's it. Then we had to transition to, to more kind of structured things. And then pl- that's when planning became uh, important. And why? Because like, if, you know, if everybody knows what everybody else is working on, that you can try to get a sense of like, how, are we overextended? Like, do we have bandwidth? Am I a blocker for somebody else? Because if they need to me do this legal review by next week and already I don't have capacity in the next three weeks, like something is going to break that. So again, for us, it was a lot of learning uh, by doing so. I was a management consultant in my previous lights. So I knew kind of how to operate very sophisticated, big company planning things. But obviously, a lot of this doesn't apply to a startup our, our stage. So we're trying to figure out like, yeah, how do we how do we do this? And practically speaking, right now we have a kind of annual planning cycle with quarterly uh, kind of planning revisions, right? So we go through this quarterly where we have the leadership team sit down and say, what are the big strategies that we're working for the year and break down into like more granular projects that are not, not at the execution level, but like bigger things of like, oh, we need to launch this new part of the product. And then at least like the company has visibility and like, what are the big rocks or blocks that we kind of have, we got to get done. And then they have the flexibility and autonomy to figure out the pieces and do it. But we try to make this kind of very visible uh, through um, you know, high level slides, but also Asana, like using management tools to put that on paper, code and call, or on, on a screen. So at least people know how, how to do it. 
we still have a long way to go. I think we try to do it too complicated at first. Then we learned that like, oh, that was too complicated from zero to 10 right away. So now we, we dial down a little bit, but I'd say regardless of how the companies do, they need to formalize planning and formalize what are you working on? It's very important for remote teams. I remember from my previous company, like even years into the, the startup sprint planning was always, <laughs> always a, a challenge, like getting sprints on time. And that, that's just one function of the company. Yeah. Again, I think the way I will summarize is like, yeah, find what is the simplest planning framework that's going to work for the startup at that stage, right? And it, that involves all areas, to your point. So it's, it's, it's very well understood how product and engineering do sprint planning, how they use, you know, roadmaps. But how about the rest of the company, right? Like, how can you kind of get them in a similar or like, you know, formalized fashion so then they can have visibility? In our case, like we are an insurance technology company. So we are in a highly regulated space. So for in our case, it's not only about software. We have operations, we have like, you know, compliance, some important areas. Like, how do we get that side of the house to work and organize themselves as clearly as engineers would with cards they're working on? And I think exactly how, I think it will vary by each company, what tools they use and the different preferences. But going back to like getting the building block or the foundation established early would really help scaling because as you go from 10 to 50 people in a remote world, if you don't have that well, it, it's, it's going to become inefficient uh, pretty quickly. And again, we made some of those mistakes ourselves, but I do think we made huge progress on that, on the area. Great. We could unpack that one for an, an hour in itself. So mm -hmm. <laughs> if anybody wants to like pick your brain on any specifics within this framework that you shared with us today we'll share your details in the show notes where's the best place for people to reach out to you and before we wrap up is there anything else you want to share anything we left out no i think it was a definitely great conversation as you can see i'm very passionate about this this topic i do think the remote it's so much better and lots a crazy world of opportunities and we're just in the early stages, right? The, the traditional management techniques that have been perfected over the last 60 years or so, or even longer than that. Well, remote, as I mentioned, we're on year four of that, of the process. So I'm pretty excited to kind of be part of this and be kind of learning. So I think we, we cover a, a good ground. In terms of where to find me, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So that's probably the best place to connect and then kind of continue a conversation from there. Awesome. And before we really wrap up, like we also didn't cover the hybrid model. We're a hybrid model. We have one remote office where there are 10 employees and then like 20 employees are fully remote. So there's also that hybrid model, which is interesting. Yeah. And the jury is too wild, right? At this point, you cannot conclude anything. The remote work doesn't work. The hybrid's better, not better. So that's why it's exciting to see how this is going to evolve. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it, Matthias. And thanks everyone for joining us today on the Founder Pack podcast. Thank you, Brandon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack podcast with Brendan Rod. 
part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.